All right. For you newbies, people who have only been here a few years even, you may not know this, but Jim Hill is he, our guest speaker this morning, and he was the uh, associate pastor at River Life Fellowship for seven years. Wasn't it seven years? No? Five years? Oh, okay. Well, news to me. Um, you were when I got here in 97 or 98 to 2005, right? So, 2002? Or, okay, okay. Wow. All right, well, just botch that up. But in any case, for a season of time, Jim uh, was on staff here and uh, just an awesome man. Um, you know, I refer to him as Apostle. You know, it's just a heavy title, which he doesn't like for me joking about. But uh, in all seriousness, I do see this apostolic thing on Jim because he loves starting things and he loves to pioneer things. And him and his wife, Kathy, currently live in Salta, Argentina in the Andes Mountains. And uh, you, if you've been around here, you've probably heard bits and pieces and so you get to put an, uh, a face with a name and a mission. And uh, so let's just uh, welcome him this morning as he comes up here. So. Is everybody doing all right this morning? You know, I'm from a little small community up in the mountains of western North Carolina. Um, named Tuxedo, North Carolina. And I grew up in a little Baptist church up there, uh, basically because there wasn't any other kind of churches in the community. That was it. Uh, but the story's told that there was a little country Baptist church up in that area that had lost their pastor. And they were looking for a new one. And so they had uh, sent out uh, to one of the Bible colleges, you know, and they got this young buck, wannabe Baptist preacher, to come and try out to be the pastor at the church. And so he comes and uh, he gives a really good message, you know. He just really preaches a, a fiery message, and all the pastoral search committee are really impressed with this young man and so immediately after the service they say we want you to be our pastor will you come here and so the guy says sure yeah that's that's why I'm studying you know because I, I really feel the Lord's called me to preach and so uh, it takes a few weeks you know for him to get his act together and move to the community and his first Sunday at the church he gets up in the pulpit and he preaches the exact same message all over again. And if anybody knows anything about Baptist churches, you know that the deacons are the ones that run the church. It's not the pastor. You know, pastors come and go, but the deacons are there for life, you know. And so um, after they thought, well, you know, he's been moving his family. He hasn't had time to get a new sermon together, you know. So that's okay, that's okay. You know, so next Sunday rolls around and he comes out and preaches the exact same message all over again. Well, the guys are thinking, we don't know if we made a mistake or not. And so um, they're talking to him after church and they says, don't you have another message? Is this the only message that you've got? And he says, no, I've got lots of messages. 
But when you get this one, I'll go on to the next one. Well, the last time I was here was in August of 2010. And at that time, uh, I shared a little poem that I felt the Lord had spoken to me. And I'm going to share it again with you. Not because you didn't get it, but because I'm still working on it. I think I'm going to preach this same message until I get it. You know, I had lunch back a few years ago with uh, a guy named Randy Clark. Some of you may know who he is. And, and he's studied revival and revivalists uh, probably more than any other person I've ever met. You know, he has an extremely um, large knowledge about revivals and preachers and their messages. And he said to me, he says, you know, most Preachers only have one message. They have thousands of different sermons to express the major revelation that they have in their life. And he says, there have been some really tremendous preachers that have had one or two revelations. Maximum he had ever heard of was somebody that had three major revelations in their life. Okay? And, and so this is like maybe a half of a revelation that I'm still working on that I want to share with you this morning. Um, back a couple of years ago, the Lord in the midst of a message gave me this little poem. It says, The will of God is not an X on a map. It's not a place, a task, or time. It's not a thing that you must find. My will is mine, says the Lord. You, my beloved, are mine. Selah. I have set my heart upon you and what I have destined you to become, a true and honest reflection of my son. Um, all right, we're going to have a Latin quiz now. Esse quam videri. We got a teacher on the front row. To be rather than to seem. It's the motto of the state of North Carolina. And I think it's probably part of our inheritance, our spiritual inheritance here in the state, to be rather than to seem. You see, it's not so much about finding the will of God. The will of God is not a project. It's not a purpose. It's not a person. Who you're going to marry, who you're going to spend your life with. It's not your profession. That's not the will of God. If it's about profession, then there's inequality in God. I was um, walking up the side of a mountain once in China. We were going up to the place where the religion Taoism was uh, founded in a cave up there on top of this mountain. And I was walking with a young Chinese man who had chosen the name Thomas Jefferson as his English name because he admired the writings of Thomas Jefferson. 
And he, he asked me this question. He says, do you believe that there's just one God in all the universe? And I said, yeah, I, I do believe that. And he says, well, your God is unjust. And I said, why? I, and he said, why is it that you think a just God can create some people and they're born into privilege and prosperity, and others are born into poverty and isolation. How can that God be just? It was quite a profound question, actually. And he wasn't asking it rhetorically. He really wanted an answer. You see, I struggle with this in, in what I do, in what I do. I'm confronted with this. One of the projects that we're undertaking as a mission is, is that, and those of you who know me realize that when I get a vision for something, it's usually beyond my capacity. But I think, the will of God is always beyond our capacity. One of the things that we want to do is establish what I'm going to call the Radio Church of the Andes, RCA. And the reason that I want to do that is we're living up in the northwestern corner right now of Argentina in a town called Salta. It's the capital city of a province called Salta. And it runs from, we're about the same distance from the equator as Miami, Florida, but the same altitude as Denver, Colorado. So we get the best effects of both of those things. But up in the mountains, in the Precordillera, the, the mountain regions up there, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of villages where the gospel of Jesus Christ, for all intents and purposes, has never been proclaimed. I'm working with a young pastor right now named Ernesto. Three years ago, he moved into a town that's called Angastaco. Angastaco from the capital city, just driving as fast and as hard as you can get uh, to do, um, it takes about five hours to get to Angastaco. There the provinces are like our states, and then those, those provinces are divided up into departamentos or departments, kind of like our counties. Well, Angastaco is the county seat. It is the municipal center of an entire valley region, okay? It's an ancient town. It was founded in the early 1700s, about 1701 or 1702, they think, was the time that the first Europeans moved in there. Of course, the Native American populations had lived in this valley since before the Inca Empire. But... It became a municipal center. It's only got about 2,000 people in, living in the town. But this is the governmental center for an entire region that stretches approximately 100 miles out towards the mountains, up towards the Chilean border in the Andes Mountains. 
Now, from Angostakwa, you can go 90 kilometers. How many people know how many miles 90 kilometers is? About 55 miles. Okay? About 55 miles up into the, uh, up into the mountains, more or less, just a guesstimate up there. It takes five hours to drive 55 miles. In other words, the road's not that good. You've got to have a four-wheel drive vehicle. Okay? We went all the way up into the mountains up to a place called Pampajana. And up in this place, we're at nearly 5,000 meters of altitude, which is about 15,000 feet. You breathe like a catfish on the bank up there. I think at 15,000 feet, a pilot's required to have oxygen supplement to fly. Isn't that right, Neil? Because you, you, it's, you, it's hard to get enough air. Well, we were up there the other day, and the school teacher, and this is a, a town. Now, we're talking 15,000 feet elevation, way up in the Andes Mountains, but the Argentine government has an elementary school and a little first aid station. They call it a uh, um, centro de salud, um, um, a health station. And about once every other week, a nurse goes there. And they've got a little shortwave radio that they can communicate all the way back down the mountain, about 90 kilometers, all the way back down to Angostaco, where there's a hospital and a full-time doctor down there. Well... The week before we were up there, this old guy, and I remember his age exactly because it's how old I am. This old guy fell off of his horse and hit his head on a rock. Okay? He was 62 years old. So when they got on the shortwave radio and they communicated with the hospital down in the valley... They said, well, Uncle Bob, or whatever his name was, I don't remember his name, I do remember his age, though, because I identified with him. They said he fell off of his horse, hit his head on a rock, and he's coming in and out of consciousness. Can you send the ambulance up here for him? And they asked, they said, how old is he? Sixty-two. Well, he's lived long enough. It's not worth sending the ambulance for him, was the reply. And he died. There's never been a Protestant church there. As far as we know, there's not a single believer in Jesus Christ in the town. This young pastor has helped several people in that community, though, get their Social Security retirement checks. He's found that this is a way to gain credibility. It's really cool. And the prophetic story on how he got into this business of helping these people with the paperwork and these uh, very remote communities, it's divine orchestration. You know, and so this is the only way he's gotten equity back in these towns because they've all been told that evangelicals are filled with demons. Be, be very careful of them. So we leave this town and we go to another town called Rio Grande. And we're there. There's only two believers in this town of 800 people. 
a man and his wife, he came to know the Lord because he had a brain tumor. And he had been taken down out of the mountain to have an operation on this brain tumor. And in the process of that, he came to know the Lord. But he's the only believer in the whole town. And while we were there in that particular town, there was a woman. Now, we're talking the end of the road. We're talking way back up in the mountains. You think, if I take you there, I promise you, you're going to feel like you're at the end of the earth. You drive up these little narrow roads and the thousand foot drop off right here and right beside your truck and you're knocking gravel off the edge of the road and I'm telling you, you pray a lot on those roads. It'll make you serious. You'll have a prayer meeting right there in the truck. My my wife's most common phrase up those mountains is, Oh my God! So we get up there and there's a woman who has walked. We're at the end of the road now. She's walked 12 hours down out of the mountains from an even more remote village to the town. And the nurse there at the health station says she's got a tubal pregnancy in all likelihood. That's pretty dangerous if it goes untreated. They call on the hospital. The hospital says, no, we can't afford to send the ambulance up there. We don't have any gas in the, in the ambulance. She also had a five-year-old child with her that had walked 12 hours down out of the mountains with her. So we loaded them up in the truck and we took her to the hospital. Now see, my idea is is that I want to give that pastor a shortwave radio and then distribute little solar-powered radios to all the people in the villages up there, everyone that will receive it, so that every night the pastor can read them the scriptures and talk to them. And he can also communicate. In some of the villages, we'll put at least one transmitter so that when they have an emergency, they can call the pastor. If the physicians and the government won't help them, the pastor will. Because you see, spiritual warfare is doing acts of mercy in the name of Jesus Christ to replace the darkness with the light of the gospel. Okay, but my challenge is, okay, what is the will of God for you? Here in America, we think about, well, what are you going to study? What profession are you going to adopt? You know, when we're talking to young people or even some old people, We have so many options. We want to know if this job is the will of God, if this profession is the will of God, what direction should I take for my life? Is that the will of God? Well, if it is, then those teenagers that live up in Pampajana, how many options do they have? What is the will of God? See, we relate the will of God mostly to temporal, material things, don't we?
Mother Teresa of Calcutta had this saying that has always bothered me. She says, Every child of the king has everything they need to do everything in the perfect will of God every day of their lives. We have a, a philosophy of lack. If I get this, I can do that. If I finish my degree, I can do this. And I'm all for education. I'm all for pursuing professions. I'm all for being the best you can be with the opportunities that are afforded to you. But the will of God is much more than that. Um, let's look at Psalm 47 here for just a minute. Oh, man, i got lots of time. Psalm 47 says, O clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with a voice of joy. For the Lord Most High... What version are we using up there? Okay, I'm reading from the New American Standard. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He is Lord of all the earth. See, in my line of work, I have to be able to speak to the young people in those remote areas up in the Andes Mountains and give them a vision for their life. But their world is entirely different than your world. But is He God over all the earth? Is He the same in all cultures at all times? Yes, He is then the will of God is obtainable for all people in all cultures in all levels of opportunity and circumstance, right? Then the will of God has to be something other than profession and the acquisition of material goods. As He subdues people under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us. I don't need to feel guilty about the opportunities that the Lord has afforded me. But I cannot afford to be embittered towards someone else who seems to have more opportunity. Because bitterness, when it enters into our heart, ruins everything. It's like the gourd that some one of the sons of the prophets threw in the stew. And it, it was a bitter gourd, and it was poison. There was poison in the pot. And you needed the salt of love to be able to make it healthy to eat again, but that's another message for another day. He chooses our inheritance for us. And then this part of the verse always confused me until recently. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves. He chooses our inheritance for us. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves. What's the glory of Jacob? And how 
Is that my inheritance? The glory of Jacob is that he was transformed from a surplanter to a prince. From someone who was taking from others to being a blessing to the nations. He was transformed. You see, that is the will of God. The will of God is our transformation. It's us being changed. You see, that's consistent in all societies and cultures in every level of opportunity and circumstance. The hope that we have in Christ Jesus is that we can be like Him. That He is in the process of transforming us into what we were created to be. A reflection of His glory. That that supersedes the, the small and insignificant limitations of material wealth and professions, and projects, and purposes that we define our lives by. What's the first... The two questions asked. You know, what's your name? Nice to meet you. You know, what do you do? Isn't that the second question? And we define each other by what we do. Not by who we are. But yesterday, Byron nailed it about Dick Van Heinegen. I never can say their last name, Van Heinegen. He said, he, lo- he did justice, he loved mercy, and he walked humbly before his God. See, that's who he was. That's who Dick was. Anybody who knew him would say, you're right. And that's all God asks of any of us. But now I want to get to the message. That was sort of the introduction. The message won't last that long. Let's look at John 1, first chapter of John. I like movies. Is anybody in here ready to admit in church that you like to go to the movies? The religious spirit doesn't visit here very often. He creeps in sometimes, but the Lord speaks to me in movies. Uh, one of my favorite movies is this little quiet picture called Secondhand Lions. Okay, I love that movie. That's a great movie. This, this, the whole movie is like a setup for about one or two minutes of dialogue in the heart of the movie. You know, there's these two old has been worn out, used up ex-soldiers who in their youth went off on a crazy adventure and got shanghaied into the French Foreign Legion and then spent their lives fighting wars in northern Africa and one thing or another until they got too old to fight anymore and they're kind of depressed about it. So they've made a wad of money and they go back to Texas. You know, they were Texans are peculiar people. My wife's people are from Texas. They're odd bunch. Uh, 
And they really value dying with your boots on, just like in the movie. They want to go out fighting, you know. And, and so um, they have to take in a nephew that is um, the neglected and abused son of a ne'er-do-well relative. So they take in this um, nephew into their home. And uh, at one point in the movie, it's set up where the old guy is telling the young guy what it is to be a real man. I think this works for women, too. You know, because it really is the same. And the heart of the whole movie is this. It says, Sometimes the things that may or may not be true are the things that a man needs to believe in most. That people are basically good. That honor, courage, and virtue mean everything. That money and power, power and money mean nothing. That good always triumphs over evil. And that love, true love, never dies. You need to remember these things because whether they are true or not, a man should believe in them because they are the things that are worth believing in. You see, circumstances and public opinion and everything around you will whisper in your ear that people are not good. You will be confronted with circumstances in your life that will tell you that good's not going to win out this time. The bad guy's going to win. Evil will overtake me in the night. That injustice is going to triumph over justice. Every one of us will have to confront situations like that in our life. But we need to believe for the high road. Whether it's true or not. You see, sometimes you've got to be willing to lay your life on the line for what you believe is right. And if you die in the process, so be it. There are some things that you just need to believe in because they are the only things that will make your life worth a grain of salt in the end. Pharisees and Sadducees in John 1, 19 had sent a bunch of their guys down to find out who John the Baptist was. It says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. 
See, it's important to know who you are not. Sun Tzu said that if you know yourself and your enemy, you need not fear the outcome of a thousand battles. Then they said to him, Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? I was reading this out loud one day not too long ago in my office down in Salton. I have a practice of I read the scriptures out loud every day. I've done this for years. I like filling the room with them. There's something about it when you speak it out into the atmosphere of the room where you're at that has power. I found that for me personally, I find it more powerful to read it out loud than to just contemplate it. So I was reading this out loud, and I was reading it in the Spanish NIV version. And when it gets to that place, it says, uh, what do you say about yourself? It says, ¿Cómo te ves a ti mismo? How do you see yourself? That's my question to you this morning. How do you see yourself? The answer to that question will determine the outcome of your life. What do you see yourself doing? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you, really? Because it's not important what you convince the pastor about. It's only important what you really believe down deep in your heart when the day hasn't gone too well and you're laying in your bed alone and you turn out the lights. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a success or a failure? Do you see yourself as a servant of the Most High King? I mean, really, honest to God, how do you see yourself? You know, the enemy is a very, very astute at the way he will twist and distort other people's opinions and your circumstance to convince you of a lie. Success and failure are both liars. Ego and insecurity, both are liars. I'm convinced that we need to believe certain things, whether they seem to be true or not. Whether they seem to be true or not. I am who the Lord says I am. Because I am defined by the great I am. My being is defined by His being because it is in Him that I move and live and have my being. 
I am in Him and He is in me to the point that the two cannot be adequately distinguished. This is what the book of Romans teaches us. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am being transformed right before your eyes. I am becoming more like Jesus every day of my life with every challenge and with every opportunity, with every circumstance, with every rotten opinion somebody else has about me, I can use that for my own benefit to become more like Jesus than I've ever been before. This is the will of God. This is the will of God in all cultures at all times for all people. The transformation of weak and imperfect vessels into the glory of Jacob. Our testimony is the testimony of Jacob that I have had my name changed. I am no longer a supplanter. I am a prince in the nations because God has chosen that inheritance for me. I am who He says I am. I am part of the great I am. Not in a cultish, weird sense of the word, but you see, He prayed for us that we would be one with Him as Jesus was one with the Father. So when the screams of your own insecurities wail in your ears at night, you can repudiate them with this simple thing. I'm in Jesus. My I am defined by Him. I am being transformed at whatever stage I'm at. Because it's not about the goal, it's about the process. You see, the, word, the will of God is not the completion of projects. And anybody who knows me knows I have battled hard for the completion of some projects. But it's like a road trip. It's like an interactive road trip. The destination is not that important. It's who you're traveling with that makes it fun or miserable. Right? Well, get on board the gospel train. Let's have a trip. Let's go somewhere. Let's get transformed. You see, that works at every stage of life. It works in Denver, North Carolina or Denver, Colorado. It works in Salta, Argentina or Pompajana. It works in Rockingham or Hamlet. It works in every culture, everywhere, all the time. The will of God is my transformation. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? I love it, too. Because if you're bored with your Christian life, you ain't listening. You ain't paying attention. My daddy used to say, son, if you didn't learn something today, you just weren't paying attention. Pay attention.
That's a, that's a great word, wasn't it? Yeah, thank you, Lord, for bringing us that word and telling us what the real will of God is. And so we can all really grab a hold of that. Peter, I was reading Second Peter 1.10 this morning, and Peter said, make sure you know that God chose you and called you. You know, and I, and I said that, I'm called and I'm chosen. Say that, I'm called and I'm chosen by God. That's good enough, isn't it? Amen. So, Lord, make that real. You know, one thing we want to do is uh, we always take up offerings for guest speakers. Um, we don't usually take up offerings for us when we speak, although I wouldn't mind doing that sometimes. But I don't know if it would be appropriate, though. You'd probably get tired of it after a couple of times. But I'd like, to, I'd like to receive an offering for Jim today, even though he's really a part of our church. He's part of our church family. Um, I want you to make the, your checks out to River Life. And this is an offering for him it's not an offering for his mission, okay? Now, he can do whatever he wants to with the money once, you know, once we give it to him. as he has to do as he pleases. Uh, but I'm sort of more inclined to, you know, we support his mission. I know many of you in the room support his mission. If you don't support his mission, you would be interested in that. You could t- discuss it with him. But if you'd just like to give him something to, just to bless him uh, today, we will make out the check to Jim Hill. And he'll have the money to go out and have a party or whatever, you know. <laughs> so let's bring those uh, things up now. And, you know, uh, Jim may be interested if you would like prayer. He may would be interested in prayer. Let's, Lord, bless the offering for Jim in Jesus' name. And let people be generous, uh, even if generosity is $1 and for them. That's good enough for heaven. Amen. And the Lord good. I love that. It's the standard everywhere, you know, is the will of the will of God everywhere. I love that. Everywhere we go, it's for us to be in Christ and conform to his image. Um so uh, we're just gonna pass this along now and but anyways, we're gonna dismiss you and but if you would like to ask Jim to pray for you, he probably would be glad to do that. Uh so, you know, he can come up here and sit on the stage or something. Uh, for anybody who would like for him to lay hands on them and just pray a, a blessing or give them a word or something. Amen. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for your, uh, your love, your blessings. Uh, thank you for being a part of this church and this family. It's, a great, it's great. You make the church great. Thank you for doing that. And I really sincerely mean that. God bless all of you, and may God give you a greater revelation of himself. Amen.